The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feeling Sound podcast. Well, on this episode, there's love in the air. As I'm interviewing the husband and wife and musical partnership, Paul Kaplan and Zetia Messiah, it's fair to say that they've both had varied and interesting musical journeys so far. There's a genuine warmth about their relationship and this crosses over into their musical collaborations too. I got the chance to catch up with them over Zoom recently where I asked them what music means to them and we explored their different musical paths and how they eventually ended up on the same journey together. My name is Zetia Messiah and um, I was born in Barbados. I grew up here in the UK and uh, from my earliest memory, I've always been into music. In fact, when I was five years old, I said to my mum, I want to be a singer. I don't remember that, obviously, but at eight, I do remember this voice and thinking, I do know what I want to do. And uh, when I was about was it 11? I was at school and one of my girlfriends, like 50 years later, reminded me that I used to bring the record player in the um, playground and play records. And I ended up being a DJ singer in, in Finland back in 1987 or something. So I knew this was going to be my journey. And when I met this gorgeous man here um, in 2010, um, I was writing a song I mean, we'd actually spoken before, didn't we, for ages, years, years before. Well, we met in 2003. Oh, God, that's right. 2003. <laughs> 2003, three yeah. Four. We met in 2003. Yeah, and uh, the, the sort of journey began pretty much after that, in a sense. Yeah, Although, got off to a slow start, yes, but we got did. there in the uh, Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paul, maybe you could pick up, I mean, you, you both come from musical backgrounds, don't you? Although yours is a, is a business-orientated musical background as well, isn't it? Well, not originally. I mean, so... It's funny that we've come from such different background and ended up in the same place and that we're so much on the same wave wavelength. I came from a musical background in the sense that I was in a pop group in the 80s. Very nerdy as a teenager. I was, I was very into computers and I studied very keen on mathematics and I did a pure mathematics degree. But I love music. I was always playing music and uh, classical music as a teenager. And then I joined this uh, rock group when I was at Cambridge. And, and then a couple of years later, we got a record deal with EMI. And so I thought that's more fun than mathematics. So, <laughs> so I sort of focused on that for a bit. And that band was called Animal Magnet, and it didn't do brilliantly well. But it had one single that's still a kind of dance floor filler. All the clubs in the north, and I get, came, still get all this fan mail. It's called Welcome to the Monkey House, and it wasn't a hit, but it's been selling steadily for the last fifty years. Then I had a girlfriend called Kate and uh, she wanted to be a singer. So I started a kind of side project with her. And then this other bloke called Jeremy Healy joined, who's now quite a famous DJ. And we suddenly found ourselves with a new band and it, it was a completely different sound. And uh, that really took off. It was called Hazy Fantasy. And it went from zero to like a million miles an hour really quickly. We, we had... Oh, three top ten hits, I think. We, we had hits in lots of different countries, but it was anyway. It was it was a lot of fun, and 
bit mad. It was a mad way to spend the 80s and, and like all the best times, I don't remember too much of it. But that was my first musical adventure. And then I spent most of the 80s in the music business doing lots of different things, working with different people. And then I left in, in the, about 1985. I got fed up with it and went off to do technology again. And I started a computer company and a software company. And it turned into a group of companies. And it grew and it turned into something else. And I spent the next 25 years doing that. And then I sold the last company in 2015 because Zita and I got together in 2010 and Zita's got the most amazing voice and I just found myself making music again because I couldn't not you know writing music and producing music with Zita and we've been doing that ever since and now I get to do it full-time again so it's like a big circle. You really have both in that respect had a very eclectic musical career it's so bizarre that you know i've only literally just met you two but you're you're infectious in as much as that i can feel that there's such a lot of warmth coming across and and it is a common bond i think because of the music zetia can i just check what's your your earliest song that you remember then of those songs that you were playing in the playground 5446 was my number that group what they called um oh, what's his name 5446 was my number. Oh, I know. Was it a scar tune? Yeah, it's a yes, scar yes. tune. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Um, Is it uh, Toots and the Maytales? Yes, yes, of course, of course. I would be playing a lot of reggae then at 11 because that's what we had at home. Joe Stafford and um, Jim Reeves. I mean, you know, West Indian family, we're playing all of that stuff, um, country music, the whole nine yards. It's funny how big country music is in the Caribbean. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's still huge, yeah. which is amazing, you know. But yeah, my um, my taste was broad from, from the start, really, I think. How old were you when you first arrived in, in the UK then? 61, so I, was, I think it's about five years old, six years old. Uh, there was such an, a, a massive kind of like um, culture within the part of London I grew up in of that music, you know, like we, you know, we, we felt like there was, it, it was as much our, mu our music when I was growing up as it was anyone else's. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the Windrush um, that era, that's, you know, we all brought, you know, the West Indians brought that music over to the mm. UK and Scar, as you know, it was seriously heavy here so yeah i mean i think it's all it's in our dna and if you look at the history of reggae london plays such a big part in it so 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 many of the major developments in in in, in reggae after from the 70s onwards actually started happening happening in london so tell me then in that case then did you had this kind of ambition to be a singer did you sing all the time was it i mean what what sort of how did you manage to get from being someone who thought they were going to be a singer felt like they were going to be a singer to becoming a singer how did it happen um well i went i was in the church uh seven day adventist church of course so we all had to go um and i sang there as a nine ten year old as a soloist and um I, I can't say it started from there. I think I've always sung, but 
it was fantastic being in the church. And then I just think it just developed as as time went on. I knew that I was just going to be singing, but I did have you know proper jobs, like my dad would say, uh, you know, um, secretarial jobs, stuff like that. But there came a time when I decided I have to sing. I've got to this work business is I can't. I've got to sing. So I knew there was something burning inside me that said, okay, you've got to do this. And I think I was 27 at the time, married with a kid at this time, thinking I've, I've got to do this. And I did. And I and I have not looked back. I'm the happiest I could be. So what's your earliest memories of singing in front of a crowd then? How did it feel? What, what was it? I mean, like maybe the church is one thing, but what about the first gig that you ever did that you felt like, God, I really am a singer. I'm on stage. I'm doing this now. In 1978? I think it was. So we were in Poland supporting Mungo Jerry. Yes, and I was the lead singer in that Lady Love band. Oh my God, I was 21 years old. It was my first my first gig was you know, supporting Mungo Jerry. And it turns out because Ziti was the support act, therefore went on first, she was actually the first Western artist ever to sing behind the Iron Curtain. Wow. It was nerve-wracking, but it was the most exciting thing to happen, you know? The girls shaved my eyebrows because I was just fresh green out from, you know, being on the scene. And uh, it was it was just awesome. In the summertime when the weather is high, you can stretch right up and touch the sky. When the weather's fine, you got women, you got women on your mind. Have a drink, have a drive, go out and see what you can find. Mungo Jerry, there's a band, huh? Can you remember supporting them? Can you remember them watching them from the side of the stage and stuff? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fantastic photograph, black and white one that we have with his band. In fact, he was taking the photograph, so he's not in it. Ray's not in it. Um, he was lovely. He's a lovely guy and the whole band. We had a wicked time, what I remember of it. But I was very young and, you know, we sat up all night and did everything that young people in the bands do. It was just awesome. Absolutely awesome. I'm going to leave it there in case I get you in trouble. <laughs> you know, Mark, it's a funny thing. I've often asked, when, when Zita and I were first together, I often asked her, you know, what her plan had been about music and how she navigated her way and what she tried to do, and which is kind of what you're asking now. And, I, and after a while, I just figured out that she didn't have one. The people just kept asking her to sing. All her life, people have been asking Zita to sing. And it's kind of all worked out, you know. And uh, it seems like she has got, an amazing voice, an amazing sort of stage presence, and people keep noticing and keep asking you to do things. Yeah, I just think the universe has just led me to be... I really, really believe the universe has just led me to where I am. Well, that's interesting. That's that's really interesting, because one of the questions that I always ask people is what music means to them. So you say it's the universe that you think it is, but you know, that, that's led you here. But, but what does music mean to you in that respect, then? Oh, my gosh, that's the question. What does it mean to me? Oh, my God, it lights me up. You know, every pore of my body is is breathing with music. It's just, I'm just talking to you now, I'm really excited about it. And I occasionally go in my room and play music and dance because it's just, it's awesome. I love it. It makes me feel happy. And I want to be able to make other people happy. We're thrilled about what we're doing and to be doing it so long after. It's, it's just, it's incredible. What about you, Paul? Well, you know, I echo everything Zetia says. I, I remember I used to say when I was younger that I'd rather go blind than go deaf because I couldn't imagine, you know, I couldn't imagine living without music. Yeah. And, 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 and I'd rather do neither, but you know what I mean. You know, we use language to communicate ideas 
and to some extent communicate feelings and emotions but language is quite a clumsy way of doing that and music communicates feelings directly mm. it's how we communicate feelings from one person's heart to another mm. uh, we've had this conversation lots of times but you know it's really easy to tell whether music when you're making music or when you're listening to it, it's really easy to tell if it's good or not either you feel something or you don't yeah. <laughs> that's all that's all it is you know if you if you feel it you feel it it's, it's good if you don't feel it it's not good I think that's where, where Marley connects with so many people is because he genuinely feels it in every pore of his body. Every great musician does. Otherwise, how could they possibly do it? And I don't know if you've ever seen Zita on stage, but she she just, the moment she gets on stage, she just lights up. She lights up and she lights up the whole room. Everybody wakes up because you can feel the energy, you know, because... Yeah, it's it's just and when people at the end of the gig, when people say you made me cry, you made me laugh, you made me I was like, Mm. oh, my God. But the other thing that the other thing that music makes means to me is it's the we've been together 12 years now and 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 I I hope and expect that we'll be together for the rest of our lives. And it's the core of our relationship. You know, our, our relationship revolves around music. We make music together all the time. We listen to music all the time. And it's such a vital part. Of who we are, of who we are yeah. And, it, and and if we weren't making music, I don't know what we'd do, no, you know? I don't know what we'd do. <laughs> so you say so you're still making music now. You've obviously got a set-up somewhere. You've got a studio set-up. I mean, are you in there every day? Is it is it something that you're doing all the time? How does it work? We're in here at the moment because we're just starting a new album. But, we, we you know, you work very hard on tunes for a period of time, weeks or months on, on a collection of tunes. And then, and then you have to go out and play them in public and you have to... Uh, and you have to promote them and you have to market them. It's, 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 there are different phases to getting music out there, you know. It would be lovely to spend all the time in the studio, although you might get some creative exhaustion if you did that. I think we might. There are weeks where we, we're in the studio every single day mm. for, for several weeks, and then and then we have other things to do, you yeah. know. And is your house always full of people, will it? Is it not always full of musicians? Are you pretty much kind of self-sufficient? How does it work? We had a lovely time at the beginning of the of last, last year. year recording. We recorded a new album at the beginning of last year, uh, a sort of reggae dancehall reggaeton album, which came up really well. And we decided to record that live with the band, or at least the rhythm section live with the band, um, because she's got great, a great reggae rhythm Crip section. Band, yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Really. So okay. we got them all here, staying here, and really stayed nice. here for really for. Nice. for, for nights four days and we just recorded all day every day and it was wonderful. yeah so it was the most because because everyone's in a bubble and we know what it's like we've been on tour right and yeah. you're in that bubble it's like yeah. you know it can't be infiltrated and it was just so magical what what we did yeah so magical and and i think you can hear it on the album i think you can feel it on the album that's good i was just about to ask you that question does that transfer itself to the album I think hope so. Yeah, but that's for us. We yeah. feel it. Yes. Have a, hope you do. Listen to it. Yeah. See what and think. we're playing it, uh, you know, like a year, 14 months after, still playing it every single day, virtually nearly in the car. I just can't. It was, it was we're so thrilled with what we did. CT went through a long period of playing jazz when she first came to, to, to England. Well, when she first came back to England from Germany, we were doing mostly jazz and blues. Mm. And we both got a bit fed up with that because we both love groove we both love the groove and the groove we wanted wasn't there and we tried to get we had wonderful lineup of jazz musicians brilliant musicians but they weren't able to play the kind of groove that we wanted right. because because reggae is a groove it's, it's a whole special thing so yeah. what we wanted to do with this album was take a reggae groove and put kind of jazz feelings on top of it and mix the two together and i think it's i think it's worked that i think it has but mm. I mean, there's one track. Most of the album is original songs, but there's some covers on it as well. And there's one cover of a little-known John Legend song 
called Start, which I think has come out as just epitomised what yeah <laughs> what it's, we were trying to do. Yeah, because because nobody yeah. nobody's heard well people that we've I've played audiences that I've played with have never heard that song and uh, my version is the first version that they've heard so of course they go back and listen to Johnny it's completely, completely different, different yeah, it's, it's like two different songs which is fantastic what goes underneath your armor underneath your clothes do you know let's find out together because you don't want to uh, be exactly the same as the original. Plus, his is a very, very slow ballad. But I could always hear, which is what I do, I hear the songs in reggae, you know, like a couple of the other um, covers that are... I could hear them in reggae, and they sound fantastic in reggae. Well, after you've yeah. played, messed about with them, they do. Yeah, well, yeah, because you fell in love with that song the moment you heard it, didn't you? Oh, it, God, I yes, remember yes. So, so it's from um, a movie, Southside, um, with, Southside you. with You, which is the Obama's uh, courtship. And uh, at the end of the the movie, the song comes on. And I did, I played it for hours over <laughs> and over again. I think I must have gotten on your nerves. And then I said you could do a reggae thing with yeah, it. Yeah, and, and then I did. And I've been doing it ever since. just such a gorgeous song i mean i love john legend in fact we're going to go and see him soon yeah. it's um yeah albert hall excited <laughs> Sorry. going back then uh you, you mentioned jazz there and a lot of times when i do these interviews with people there's we naturally get back to jazz at some point who was it for you then what, what jazz was it that you were that you were really into well interestingly enough i remember listening to billy holiday and uh ella Fitzgerald. Uh, and Sarah Vaughan. But Ella was the one that I gravitated to because I found um, Billy too sad. And to, I'm not that, I don't have that personality. I know that sounds weird. I can mm. absolutely feel what other people feel about her. But for me to sing, I, it was Ella always mm. for me. There's something about her spirit, perhaps, I don't know, that I, I identified with. And, of course, I sang a lot of her songs. But uh, it's interesting because both Zita and I love jazz and we love all forms of jazz, but we both particularly love female jazz vocalists. We're tremendously drawn to them. And a, mm -hmm. a, a few male ones. But, but I wouldn't say that either of us is a, is a jazz specialist. You know, mm. it's something you can go into yeah, so deeply. We don't, yeah. we don't spend hours listening to obscure Charlie Parker albums. It's, you know, not, not, not that there's anything wrong with that and there's some amazing stuff there. Our taste is more mainstream in jazz, but we both love it very much. Because you're into groove, does that mean that you quite like the kind of more funky jazz that came after the traditional stuff? 
Like Duke Ellington said, there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music, you know. <laughs> and you say, I like them both. But, but you know, it, it's, it's, we both love the groove, but we both love jazz that doesn't have a particular groove. Yeah. If it's great, if it, yeah. if it makes you feel something, like I said yeah. before, if it makes you feel something, that's all that matters. What song epitomises your love of Ella then? Oh, God, there's so many. Um, Accentuate the Positive could be one. That's one of the first ones I learned from her, which I love doing. There's so many. Um, Blow Ill Wind. Blow Ill Wind, blow away. Let me rest today. remember the album now but when I was in Finland I played this album over and over and over again but with Ella it's less about the individual songs you don't it's not about her greatest hits it's, it's about, about the, her it's it? about her vocal performance on everything yes. she ever did you know yes you just listen to her voice it doesn't matter what she's singing yeah actually because yeah, she could yeah. sing anything at all and yeah. you know the only thing I regret is not seeing her live I, I really should have seen her live and I, I never did that I think you did no you I did. never did I, I, I saw Nina live oh, I, that's right yes. I almost made a tv program with Ella Fitzgerald years ago but she was too sick by that stage unfortunately she was supposed to be doing there was a t series of tv programs I was involved in producing uh, with Peter Houston up and it was supposed to be one with her, but she was really in a bad way and she couldn't do it. Well just while we're on that subject I, I seem to remember reading somewhere that, that you interviewed uh, Pavarotti, didn't you? Uh, uh, as part of that, was that right? You sort of did did a whole series of of people. Was that right, Pavarotti? We did a program with Yusinov and Pavarotti, both of whom have, have left us now, sadly. And it was a lot of fun. And it was it, the idea was to do a whole series of things with, with Yusinov. You mentioned before that you're in Animal Magnet, and obviously you went on from there. To, to be to be involved, as you said, with Hazy Fantasy, a band who I distinctly remember as having a really eclectic mix of different styles and genres going on. Reggae, country, pop. How did that happen? What what went on there? We were just having fun and we didn't care what we threw in. You know, we were we, we did it all in the studio. We were kind of we we thought of it thought of it as a kind of studio project. And the great thing two there were two amazing things about being in London in the early eighties. One was the scene. This is the late seventies, early eighties. There was the most incredible scene. There was a, there were two houses in Warren Street off Tottenham Court Road in the West End, which, two huge houses which were empty, and they were the Warren Street squat. I'm sure you know. Yeah. And so and 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 so many of my friends lived in it. Jeremy used to live in it. Boy George used to live in it. All the standard ballet guys used to live in it. Um. Uh. I mean. <laughs> It was it was this hot bit of creativity. Um, they would all get dressed up at night, try you know get, get dressed up at night and go out to clubs, and and they did, they were competing with each other. They didn't care what anybody else thought. So these amazing ideas came out of that, and that's how George's whole style developed. And John Galliano was there, you know, and he went on to be one of the world's greatest fashion designers, you know. And and in fact, the funny thing happened because there was a there was a theatrical costumer in the West End called Angels which was basically the one that all the oh, theatres yeah. went to to yeah. get the costumes. And it burnt down. There was a big fire 
1979, I think. I'm not sure about that. I think it was 1979. The big fire and it burnt down. They had a fire sale and sold off all these amazing 18th, 17th, 19th century wow. costumes that they had. And everybody, every Warren Street went down there together. And they all came back with armloads of stuff. And that's where a lot of the looks came from. Yeah. So Adam Ann got his look from, you know. And that was that was weird. And the other amazing thing was London was full of brilliant musicians who, I mean, we, it's, you know, what we discovered in Hazy Fantasy was London was full of these really world-class musicians who'd play for you for scale. You get them in the studio and you pay for pay them sort of 50 quid an hour or something and they play their hearts out. So we just went bonkers, you know? <laughs> we got violinists and heavy metal guitarists and every, anything we could think of. We just stuck them on the record, you know, because they were there and because it was so exciting, so much fun. I'm not sure of the timeline involved here, but obviously I know that you were uh, involved with Marilyn uh, as an artist um, after you were the Hazy Fantasy. Uh, but there was a, such, an, a, such a strange mixture of, of different things happening at the time. I know Jeremy was potentially uh, friends with Boy George. Tell me a little bit about that. Jeremy, who was in Hazy Fantasy, was at school with Boy George, with George O'Dowd as he was then. They were old friends and they became really competitive. And... So I knew George really well in those days. Jeremy was a great visual stylist, incredible clothes sense, and he he was he was the first white man I ever saw with dreadlocks. Um, and uh, it just he just he got this wax. He got wax candles and dripped it on his hair, and then plaited all his hair into his hair. And then we formed Hazy Fantasy at about the same time George formed Culture Club. In fact, slightly afterwards. And when we released our first single, which was a big hit. George had already released two flop singles. People don't remember that Celtic Club released two singles. And they sounded like Bow Wow Wow. Do you remember Bow Wow Wow? That, that yeah. Burundi rhythm stuff. Well, that's where George was going first of all. That was his first idea. And the first two singles sounded like that, and people didn't like them. They didn't go anywhere. And then we had that hit. Jeremy and Hazy Fantasy had a hit with John Wayne as Big Lady. And, and, and George just got absolutely furious. And then, of course, Celtic Club. They made this album, and as an afterthought, they added this lovers' rock tune called "Do You Really Want to Hurt Me," which is nothing like the other tunes on the album at all. Mm. And the record company said, "We like that. We're going to release it." And then, of course, the rest is it's history. history. <laughs> um, and and they immediately changed their style very sensibly to follow to follow to follow the money. And that's Culture Club, and and they did brilliantly. And although I do remember, I'm going to go off a little bit of a tangent here. I do remember in the early eighties, George coming around. I had this sort of warehouse at that time, place in Soho, and George came around to my place, terribly excited. He'd just come from the cutting suite where they've been cutting the acetate, which is how he used to make vinyl records in the old days, for his new single. Um, and he was really excited about it. I hadn't heard it. They'd just finished recording it, mixing it, and they cut it. And the acetate, you can actually play the acetate. They, they make several of them. They take one off to make the vinyl, but they brought one that you could play. And he played it to me, and it was called Karma Chameleon. And I said, that's rubbish, George. You're not going to release that, are you? It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you didn't listen to you. <laughs> no, well, they released it anyway. I guess they knew what they were doing.
another friend of George's, an old friend of George's called Marilyn, turned up on my doorstep one day, and he was an incredibly good-looking, sexy, charismatic, gender-indeterminate person who, who's called Marilyn because one of the things he'd done as a teenager was a sort of Marilyn drag show uh, impersonation. And 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 uh, he said, I want to be a pop star. You made those other people into pop stars. I want to be a pop star too. And I said, all right. And it was a perfect moment because his he was incredibly charismatic, as I said. And that, that was a time when androgyny has tremendously of interest and fashionable and 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 he actually had really good ideas about songs he he was very into Motown and he wanted to sing and record Motown songs so I became his manager and songwriter somehow and and I said all right let's do it and 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 he had an idea for a song called Calling Your Name and he had he'd written the words and he had sort of idea for a chorus and I wrote the rest of it and recorded it and immediately got him signed to phonogram and it was immediately a big hit so i thought this is easy this music business love uh, famous last words it got much harder after that but the funny thing about his fantasy was it was actually a very short-lived project we only went together about two years and we did all that stuff and then we didn't have the sense to stay together because we all we were too young and stupid to realize <laughs> that we had something really precious we all got together we said let's let's make a band and we were very excited about what we could do i went to see dave ambrose who was the head of nremi who Animal Magnet was signed to, and I knew really well. And I said, I've got this new project. I think it might be really good. Um, can we have some time in the studio to do some demos? Because the only way you could do demos in those days was a record company pay for the studio time because it was so expensive. You couldn't do it at home like you can now. So he said, yeah, all right. Well, I'll think about that. Um, can you play me some of your songs? And I said, well, give us some demo time. And I will. And he said, well, you've got a piano you, at your place. I'll, I'll come around on Friday and you can play them to me. <laughs> so I said, all right. <laughs> And I went back to Kate and Jeremy and he said, how did it go? And he said, well, I said, well, he's up for it, but he wants to hear some songs. He wants to come around. And we didn't have any songs. <laughs> so this is Monday. And between the Monday and the Friday, we wrote all the songs, pretty much all the songs on the album, pretty much all, all the good songs we ever had, we wrote in that week. <laughs> and so we found ourselves, you know, not that long afterwards in the studio with Tony Visconti, who was like some kind of god to us with this song we'd written behind the piano on Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> It just means so much more when you've got a little bit of the sense of of where it came from, even if it, even if it is you know like a slightly strange story. I love that. I love the whole idea of it. You mentioned Visconti there. I mean, obviously, you must have met some incredible characters. I've toured with um, Tom Jones and um, Michael Jackson with, well, the, with the Kim Wilde thing of the Bad Tour, and, 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 nineteen eighty-eight. And with uh, Phil Collins and Sting. Yeah, and I've done Robbie uh, Williams and yeah, yeah, yeah. and a couple of. Foreign Japanese artist called Ikichi Yazawa, and of course Johnny Alliday.
you've obviously sung with some fantastic artists. There's a very unique role that you play in that, though, isn't it? As a backing singer and and someone who's a, as a kind of a soloist as well. You know, like you 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 do you do get a very interesting insight, no doubt, into the artists themselves. I'm sure. I mean, can you give me some some sort of sense of of where that would how that would work with an artist? Most of the time, the artists that I've worked with are absolutely amazing, and they're happy for you to be you. A lot of the time I've been with other singers as well. It's not just been me, but on occasion you could be working with somebody who's quite a big star and and really and truly you don't want to be there. I don't know if it's them being um, insecure that they actually don't even look at you on the stage, which is crazy. You know, you're working as one, the, the artist and the band, and yet they, they don't look at you. That wasn't cool. Um, and then you get other people that, ugh, like Tom Jones, is just awesome. You know, we couldn't do we we couldn't we could do as much as we as we wanted to, and he just loved it. And but he's a he's a great guy. He really is. I've seen some of the pictures and heard some of the stories, and the tours just seem like one long party. You know, <laughs> it just yes. never stopped. Yeah, but you know, music is supposed to be enjoyed, and I've been lucky I suppose really because I have done all most of the tours I've done I've really loved apart from one or two of them um but being the role that you said yes it is a very important role you have to know what you're doing and um you know the harmonies need to be right um but it's it's a wonderful journey it really is to be with uh, fantastic musicians and I remember being in uh, Japan working with Akichi Yazawa we used to do three months, about 50 gigs, 55 gigs in those three months between De uh, September and December. And the quality of the sound and just was second to none. Most people on this side of the world don't know who he is, but he's yeah. like the biggest rock star in Japan, pretty much. And CT was playing these stadiums with him every, about it 10 years. Yeah. yeah, for 10 yeah. years. A lot mm. of artists, uh, musicians have worked with him here, actually, mm. as well. Um, but it was just, I mean, in fact, I'm still in touch with him and I'm I'm sort of daring him to invite me to come and do a duet or something in one of his, because uh, he, he tours every single year, every year between September and December. And it was just awesome. I did a duet with him as well. So, I mean, it's just been, it's just, I just get all very excited when I think about being on stage because that's where I was, I was born to be there. What is the one track that you know would epitomise that time you spent in Japan? Then? Well, I think it would be Sugar Daddy, the duet that I sang with Ikichi. He is a phenomenally big artist in Japan and that side of the world, isn't he? People, as you said, as you rightly say, people don't even know who he is sometimes, but he's he's a massive artist. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that so many people in, in this country don't know who Johnny Halliday was. If you, if you mention him to a French person, they kind of swoon, you know. Tom Jones, as you rightly pointed out, for, for me, he, he lives for the music. You know he does. He's done it forever. Um and so what, what track always reminds you of Tom? 
I would say green, green grass of home. Even thinking about it makes me well up, you know. Yes, they'll all come to meet me, arms reaching, smiling sweetly. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. I just got all tingly when you said that. It's so weird, isn't it? You've spent a lot of time in Europe, by the sounds of it. You've had a very far-ranging career, worked with some fantastic artists, uh, but you've also travelled a lot on, on, during, during that. It's been, it's been a real musical journey for you, isn't it? Literally a journey. Tell me how you ended up in Europe and then tell me how you ended up back in the UK. <laughs> All right. So uh, I started in Poland and, uh, and then I ended up in Germany. Uh, so Poland, uh, God, I mean, where, where this, uh, all over the place, seriously. But I lived in Germany for 11 years. That was the difference. I mean, I toured in um, Poland and uh, France uh, and Japan, but I I actually lived in Germany for 11 years before I came back to the UK in 2012. Um, and why did you come back? Why did I come back? Because uh, I fell in love and, um, you know, I had to come back to my love and to my grandson. <laughs> that's why i'm back here after was it is it 10 years now 12 years 12 years, 12 years yes well i mean i was guided you know i said to the universe i was in a i was in a place which wasn't very nice and then then i was i got out of that and i said to the universe okay there's a few things that i would like and one of the things was i want a, a wonderful man someone who makes me laugh a musician a uh, cool guy, and uh, Paul, there he was. Is there a song then that epitomises the the whole you coming back to be with Paul that you've done together? Yes, there is a song. Um, and it's the song that uh, Paul wrote for me when I came back from Germany called Whatever This Is. Whatever this is, yes, because that's how I felt about it at the time. It's a song about falling in love and not knowing what's happening. To yeah, you. all the, the the lyrics were very self-explanatory. <laughs> yes. Paul, may, maybe you could pick up then. In that case, um, there's been other songs. Then let's just let's just bring it slightly up to date. And there's a song that I've got to ask you about. What a ting! Uh, tell me about what that song is about and where it came from. Well, we we were a year ago. We were writing this new album, and we were. It was going to be a reggae-themed album, which is how it turned out, and we were working on a whole pile of songs, and Zitya and I were out at a gig, weren't we? That's right, yes. Um... It was it was um, uh, Maxi Priest. Maxi Priest, yes. That's right. And they were playing some music before the band came on, and this song just jumped into my head. And this was, you know, halfway through the lockdown, just at the end of the lockdown, in fact, that's why they were playing. Yes, the lockdown just yeah. finished. Donald Trump was still president. Britain had voted, voted to leave the European Union, and the world had obviously completely 
gone God, mad. Absolutely crazy. And, and so I just wrote a song about that. And the tube was born in Barbados and something that Bajans say. Well, it's kind of a West Indian thing. Really, West Indian thing, yeah. Look at Barbados and Jamaica. They say, what, what a thing? What, what a thing, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, he does it right. So I wrote a song called What a Thing <laughs> about the state of the world. They told me there's COVID in the 5G. They told me the earth is flat. I wonder if Google's got a map for that. No need to fear now what's going on here now. It's all very clear now. We've all gone crazy. What a ting, what a ting, do a shit crazy. What a ting, what a ting, everybody crazy. What a ting, what a ting, do what a crazy, crazy ting. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's too, maybe the song is too, um, too direct because I mm. said, said how I felt, but people seem to like it, and it, and it's not a reggae song. It's a, a sort of it's a dancehall song, really. So electrical, Dance, yeah. sort of and, and in fact, I didn't know it was a reggae song, but it turns out the people hear it as reggae because it's been really popular all across South America. We've got we got masses of plays from Latin American countries, so I guess it must sound a bit like that music. Yeah. They seem to respond to it. What does the future hold for you two then? I mean, you've got your studio there, you're working on stuff all the time. What can we expect to see from YouTube next? We're really enjoying ourselves and we're going to keep making music, obviously. And we've started a new album right now. We released the last album last year. We released uh, four singles from it and it did really well. Um, I mean, by our standards, it got it got hundreds of thousands of streams on Spotify and lots of Shazams and got played all over the world. So we were kind of encouraged by that. We thought, well, let's keep doing this because it's working. And we're making a new album and the new album is in a new style because as you mentioned earlier we, we get bored easily and we we and and it's a kind of evolution because we we the the the, the previous set of tracks started off as reggae and then we found ourselves doing more and more dancehall and uh raga and uh reggaeton kind of grooves and then that led naturally to what we're doing now uh which is afrobeats which is very contemporary, but a natural extension of where we were going anyway. It's music that we both love. Yeah, because we've been inspired by, you know, Wizkid, um, Burner Boy, Davido, Dynamite, yeah. people like this. So, you yeah. know, it's, it just feels it's great. It's very sexy. So we thought it is sexy, and that's a good thing. And, and, <laughs> and it's and, all good. People, yeah. people feel so good. I feel it So we are making an Afrobeats album and and it's feeling really good so far. It's feeling really good. So that's that's what this year is going to be about. And how can people keep up to date with what you're doing there? Where, where can they follow you? Well, it's it's hard to escape us on Facebook and Instagram <laughs> because Zetia yes. posts 24 well, hours a day. That's not true. I post 24 hours and that's absolute rubbish. Now, now and then I post, obviously. Um, but yes, uh, of course, my website, uh, Zetia.com. Z-double-E-T-A-H.com and Instagram, of course, Facebook. Um... If anybody's interested for yeah. this, if they Google Zetia, it's all there. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, nobody else seems to have that name, so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's easy to find. 
Well, listen, guys, I can't thank you enough for giving me some of your time. I know that you're very busy and I appreciate it. I really do. Um, I cannot wait to hear this new version of you. So uh, I'll keep my eyes out for it when it comes out. Thank you again. Right, Mark, thank it's been you. a real pleasure. It's thank been you very wonderful. much. Wonderful. I'm glad we made it happen. You've been listening to the Feeling Sound podcast with me, Mark Reeson, and that was Paul Kapling and Zetia Messiah. As ever, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Take care.